I'd like you to open in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Having looked at the introduction in verses 1 to 3, and having seen the salutation in verses 4 to 8, we come this morning to John's vision of the risen, ascended Christ in verses 9 to 20. And John no longer sees Christ in humiliation as he records him in his gospel. Here he sees him in all his glory. And the description of Christ that we find here in his grandeur is equaled only by John's similar description of him in Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 to 16. And to help us understand this passage, I'd like to suggest we divide it into four parts. John's circumstances, John's vision, John's reaction, and John's commission. First of all, we see John's circumstances in verses 9 to 11. And we'll just divide that into two parts as well because we see his physical circumstances in verse 9, and then we see his spiritual circumstances in verses 10 and 11. First of all, his physical circumstances, verse 9. Notice what he says. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, John wrote this about 95 A.D. It's been over 60 years since he and the other disciples were walking with Christ on this earth. And I think it's safe to say that he was the only living apostle. He was around the age of 90 and was surely esteemed by the church as the most revered saint of his day. And I suppose that John could have drawn attention to that, but notice instead how he identifies himself. He says, I, John, your brother. I'm just one of you. We're all brothers in the family of Christ. And there is no hierarchy here. Here's John, the eldest, uh, perhaps even in the church, certainly being the only apostle left, people would tend to esteem him highly. And he says, I'm John, your brother. And then he mentions himself in another way. He says, I am your fellow partaker. I share in the same things you do. And John mentions three things that they share together. He mentions tribulation, he mentions the kingdom, and he mentions perseverance. Three chief characteristics of the early church were that they lived in tribulation, they waited for the kingdom, and they were marked by patience. Now when he mentions tribulation here, this is to be differentiated from the tribulation that he will speak of later that will come in the future. John is talking here about the tribulation that he's going through as a member of the early church, that early church that was so unmercifully persecuted by the emperors of Rome who had already claimed the lives of Peter and Paul and most of the other apostles. And John says to these Christians that he writes to, we're fellow partakers in tribulation. We have a common brotherhood in suffering. And nothing binds the hearts together like mutual suffering. We're fellow partakers in tribulation. Then he mentions a second thing. He says we're fellow partakers in the kingdom. Now, back in verse 6, we were told that Christ has made us to be a kingdom of priests. We are fellow partakers in the kingdom. You know, this is not your normal kingdom. 
because Christ is the king, but he hasn't yet received his kingdom. So we are a kingdom, but we really haven't realized that in its full-blown form. A perfect illustration of that would be David in the Old Testament. Remember, David was anointed by Samuel to be the king. He was set apart to be the king, but he didn't actually receive his kingdom because he spent many years while Saul persecuted him. And those who were followers of David had to be patient until David finally took the throne. And that parallels to where we are. We are in the kingdom. We are fellow partakers of the kingdom with John, but it's not yet been realized in its completed physical form. Which brings us to the third characteristic. He says we are fellow partakers in perseverance. And John says we're patiently waiting for the kingdom to come. We're not discouraged. We're not despondent. We're joyfully enduring and joyfully waiting for the blessed coronation of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice something in verse 9. All of these things that he mentions, all of these things that he is a fellow partaker with us in, are in Jesus. You see that phrase? He says, we're fellow partakers in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus. Yes, there's a kingdom in Jesus, but there's also tribulation in Jesus. And if you don't discover that there's perseverance in Jesus as well, you're going to have a rough ride. Jesus establishes us in an eternal kingdom. He calls us through present tribulation, and he enables us with an enduring patience. And those are three aspects of every Christian's life. I want you to take your Bible, keep your finger in Revelation 1, and look back at Romans chapter 8, because there Paul ties these same three characteristics together. Romans chapter 8. I just want to establish in your mind the fact that these are common characteristics of the Christian life. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. I'd like to just cut in halfway in the middle of that verse. <clears throat> Paul says, If indeed we suffer with him, there's tribulation, in order that we may also be glorified with him, there's the kingdom. If we suffer with him, tribulation, in order that we may also be glorified with him, the kingdom. And then notice the perseverance, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's his attitude of perseverance. I consider these present sufferings aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. And if you slide down to verse 25 at the end, he says, talks about the perseverance with which we wait eagerly for that kingdom. And so we have tribulation, we look for a kingdom, and we also have the perseverance to go through this tribulation today, and all of that is found in Jesus Christ. Now, when we come back to Revelation chapter 1, we find that when John mentioned tribulation, he was speaking from experience because he says further in verse 9, I, John, was on the island called Patmos. Now, Patmos was a small, rocky, treeless island, had a rather forbidding terrain. It was about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. It was located on the Aegean Sea southwest of Ephesus. And it was an island where prisoners were banished. 
John was there because he had been exiled there under the Roman emperor Domitian. You say, well, why was John exiled? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 9. He said, I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And even at the venerable age of 90, John still refused to compromise his faithful preaching concerning the resurrected Christ. Can you imagine that? That's exciting to me. John is not at least 90 at this point, but John isn't fainting and John isn't fading off the scene. John is so active and so involved and so outspoken that they have to banish him from the Roman Empire. He's making such a stir at the age of 90. That's exciting to me. And my prayer is for myself, if I ever get that far, that I'll still have the fervor that John has at the age of 90. You know, we, we sang a song last week, and it really hit me, <clears throat> a certain phrase in it, and it was, uh, it was hymn number 555, and it's a, it's a song written by Bernard of Clairvaux. But listen to this verse. He says, O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. If I ever get to the point, Lord, where I start to faint, don't let me live any longer, because I don't want to ever outlive my love for you. Isn't that exciting? That should be our prayer. I'm sure that was John's prayer. And here he is at the age of 90, and he's so active and so involved and, and proclaiming the message of Christ in such a way that they have to banish him to this little island of Patmos to get him out of the way. But you know, in, in God's sovereign design, the Patmos of persecution became the platform for prophecy. And that's really the way God operates oftentimes. Because when we look at how we receive the scriptures, we'll find that Moses wrote the Pentateuch in the wilderness. David wrote most of his psalms while running from Saul. Isaiah wrote amid tribulation. Ezekiel wrote in exile. Jeremiah wrote under constant trial. Peter wrote in prison right before his martyrdom. Paul wrote many of his letters while in prison. And so it shouldn't surprise us that John writes this great book of Revelation while in exile on Patmos. And this isolated island became the door to the most sublime communication any man ever had with heavenly things. Those were John's physical circumstances in verse 9. Secondly, we see his spiritual circumstances in verses 10 and 11. Notice verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, when John says, I was in the Spirit, he's not just talking about walking in the Spirit. That's a given. We're going to assume he was walking in the Spirit when, when this all took place. But what he's talking about here is, when he says, I was in the Spirit, he's talking about being carried by the Holy Spirit to an abnormal, supernatural, divine experience. I was in the Spirit. In fact, look over just a few chapters to uh, chapter 4 and verse 2. He says this phrase again. Chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. He finds himself again in the Spirit, and this time he's in heaven where he sees a throne. Look at chapter 17 and verse 3. He uses the phrase again there. 
He says, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman and so forth. Chapter 21 and verse 10, he uses it another time. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. So when he talks about it being in the spirit, he's not talking about his spiritual condition at that point in time. He's talking about being transported by the spirit of God into the future, into the world of divine vision. And what he saw was the whole volume of the book of Revelation. He says, I was in the spirit. And he tells us further, he says, back in chapter 1 and verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, what does he mean by on the Lord's day? Well, there are two possibilities for that. Uh, some say that this is a reference to Sunday. <clears throat> and we often call Sunday the Lord's day. And I guess that's proper to call Sunday the Lord's Day because it's the day which we worship the Lord. We no longer worship the Lord on the Sabbath. We worship Him on the first day of the week, which is the pattern established for us in the New Testament church. Acts 27, 20 verse 7, Acts, or 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2 tells us that the early church met on the first day of the week. We memorialize Sunday, the day of resurrection, and not the Sabbath, the day of law. And so we gather on Sunday, and we often call it the Lord's Day, although if you look in your Bible, you'll find that the Bible never calls Sunday the Lord's Day. However, some people think that this is the one time when Sunday is called the Lord's Day. So if that's the case, then John is saying, I was in the Spirit on Sunday. I have a little bit of a problem with that, because I, I don't really, you know... To me, it didn't matter if it was Tuesday or Thursday or what day of the week. And it seems strange to me that John here is on this isolated island far away from fellowship, and he's saying, oh, it's Sunday. I better get in the Spirit. You know, I, I don't sense that because I sense that John was a fellow who thought every day was the Lord's day, and that was his approach. I think there's a better solution to this, a better answer to why he tells us it's the Lord's day. And I think the reason is this. The scriptures use a phrase to describe the end of time. When God is going to wrap it all up, when God is going to settle all his accounts, the scriptures use a phrase to describe that time. It's a phrase used over and over in the Old Testament scriptures by the prophets. It's used many times in the New Testament by the writers there. It's the phrase, the day of the Lord. And you'll find it used over and over in scripture. In fact, take your Bible, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7. Just give you a flavor of this, this phrase because you'll find it throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7. Notice the second half of this verse. Paul says, We're waiting eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he, he associates those two phrases. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the name of the book we're studying, and the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, 
I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, we're told, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And then let me quote you a verse from Luke 17, 24. Jesus says, For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. I love that statement. Jesus says, so shall the Son of Man be in His day. You know, this is man's day. This is Satan's day. But there is coming a time when Jesus is going to have His day. And I think that's what John is referring to here to in Revelation chapter 1. He's saying, I was in the Spirit, transported ahead in time to the Lord's day. I was transported ahead in time to that day when the Lord is going to step in and take over. And that's what we really find recorded for us in this book of Revelation, is the day when Christ comes and takes over and settles accounts. And then something else happened in his spiritual circumstances. At the end of verse 10 John says, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And you say, well, who is this voice? Well, we'll find out it's Christ. But John says, as I heard the voice, it sounded like a trumpet. Now, the trumpet has always played an important role in Scripture. When God came down on Mount Sinai to give Moses a law, we're told on the mountain there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and a loud trumpet. When the service of the temple began every morning, they would open the door of the great temple and the trumpet would sound. When the year of Jubilee came every 50 years, it was announced on a silver trumpet. And the next time we hear the trumpet, it's going to announce our transformation into the likeness of Christ at the resurrection. The trumpet of God will sound. But in this case, Christ's voice is like a trumpet. And we talk about people projecting their voice. And we talk about people speaking with authority. Well, I can tell you this. In Christ's day, when he speaks, people are going to listen. Because John says he has a voice that sounds like a trumpet. His voice is penetrating and it's authoritative. And here's what he said to John, verse 11, saying, write in a book what you see. Now, this is the first of 12 times pardon me, that John is told to write what he sees. And so what we have here is an eyewitness account of the future. It's our glimpse of things to come through the eyes of John. But the interesting thing is here that, that Jesus says, not write what I tell you, but write what you see. That's more difficult. Because when you have to write what you see and you're seeing something you've never seen before, you find yourself using a lot of similes. Saying, well, it's like this and it's like that. And that's what we find in the book of Revelation. In fact, if you noticed at the end of verse 10, he said, behind me there was a voice like the sound of a trumpet. Verse 14, and his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze. He's trying to describe what he sees, and he uses many similes to do that. He has to tell us what it's like, because he's never seen anything like that before. 
And so we, we see this through the eyes of John, but we, we don't really see it. We, we see it through the words of John as he just tries to describe the things that he has shown by the Lord. And then he says <clears throat> in verse 11, write it in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And each of these churches received a copy of the book, and each church got a personal evaluation, as we'll see when we get to chapters 2 and 3. So that's John's circumstances. He was exiled on the, the little island of Patmos. He was transported in the spirit to the Lord's day. And he was told to write what he sees and send it to the seven churches. And then secondly, we see John's vision. And that's described for us in verses 12 to 16. And there are two aspects of John's vision that stand out here. His vision of Christ. We see Christ's position and we see Christ's person. First of all, we see his position in verses 12 and 13. Notice verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. Now obviously, he can't see a voice. But he turned to see who it was that was speaking to him. And he says, And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now if your Bible says candlesticks, that's not an accurate translation. Because he's talking here about lampstands. And a lampstand is a holder of light. They placed oil in the bowl on top and they lit the oil. It was not a light itself, it was a holder of light. You say, well, what are these seven lampstands? Well, slide down to verse 20 and he tells us, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, that's great symbolism because that tells me that every one of these local churches was a lampstand, which tells me that we as a local church are a lampstand. And we as a local church bear the light of Christ in a dark world. We're not the source of the light. We're the holders of the light. Christ is the source, and we are the lampstands, and we shine his light in a dark world. And he tells us here that there are seven lampstands. We've said already in the book of Revelation that seven is the number of completion, which tells me that in some way these seven churches represent the complete church. And we'll get into that next week as to how that works itself out. But there's a second thing he tells us about these lampstands, and that is that they're golden. And I like that. They're golden. That tells me what Christ thinks about his church. These lampstands are not tin. They're not iron. They're gold. The most costly of all metals. Which tells me that a group of Christians radiating Christ's light in the midst of a dark world is the most precious thing he has. Isn't that exciting? We are a golden lampstand. We are precious to Christ. We had a great example of that this weekend as our students went into the old Rialto Theater and lit it up, literally and figuratively, with the gospel of the glory of Christ. We're a lampstand. And the question when we get to chapters 2 and 3 is, what kind of light are we putting out? Are we radiating the light of Christ to the world around us? 
And so John sees these seven lampstands representing local churches. And then in chapter, verse 13 he says, And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, the term son of man is a messianic title. You'll find Christ calling himself that over and over again. He talks about the son of man. He calls himself that. But here it's not the son of man. It's a son of man. And that reference, the son of man, relates to his humanity, emphasizes his humanity. Here he says he's like a son of man. Daniel used that same phraseology in Daniel 7.13, talking about the Messiah being like a son of man. And when he says that, what he's telling me is this. He's saying the emphasis is not upon his humanity, it's upon his deity. The emphasis here is not upon his humiliation, it's upon his exaltation. And so as John sees him, he says he's like a son of man. He's like a man, but he's much more than a man. That's what he's saying. When I saw the vision of Christ, when I saw him, I could make out that he was a man, but he was much more than a man. And the emphasis was not on his humanity in this case, in his glorification. The emphasis was upon his deity. And so he sees this one like a son of man, and he's in the middle of the lampstands. And the picture here is that he, in the middle of these lampstands, is the true light. He's the one who gives the light to the lampstands who are the bearers of light. And the picture is also of one who walks among the lampstands and cares for them, ministers to them, makes sure that they have enough oil, makes sure that they remain lit. And so it's a beautiful picture of Christ walking among his local churches and ministering to each one and trying to make sure that the light continues to shine in this dark world. And then he tells us something about his position by the way that he's dressed in verse 13. He says he's clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across the breast with a golden girdle. Now, this robe brings to mind the attire of three individuals in the Old Testament. In fact, this Greek word is used of three positions in the, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's used of the high priest. It's used of a prophet, and it's used of Saul the king. So when we see this robe, it identifies to us Christ's position, and we can go back to one of those three positions, high priest, prophet, or king. And many commentators debate about which one it is here that, that John is seeing that, that this robe represents for us, but I don't bother to worry about that because I think that this robe is representing all three. Because here we see Christ as the high priest. And what he's doing here is really a high priestly minister. He's caring for the lamps. And he's got this girdle around his breast. That's to hold up uh, the bottom of his robe so that it doesn't get involved in the flame of the lampstands. And he's around ministering as a high priest to these lamps. In Revelation chapter 19, we see a similar vision of Christ. And you can look at it later. But there in, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 13... It says that Christ's robe was covered with blood and his name was the Word of God. His name is the Word of God. He's the prophet. And then further in Revelation chapter 19 in verse 16, it says, On his robe there was a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So he is the prophet, the Word of God. He is the king, king of kings. And he is the high priest ministering here among the lampstands. And no one in the Old Testament ever held all three offices. No one ever held all three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And here we find the Lord Jesus coming with this robe that signifies to us his position. He is the prophet, priest, and king. 
in the midst of his churches. And then secondly, we see not only his position, but his person. And that's in verses 14 to 16. And John here points out seven characteristics of Christ, all related to parts of his body. It's interesting to me here that, that John identifies the symbolism of two items here, the stars and the lampstands. He doesn't identify for us anything about relative to these parts of Christ's body because this symbolism we can understand from the Old Testament Scriptures. Now notice what he says about Christ. He identifies seven characteristics. Number one, he identifies his head and his hair. Verse 14, he says, And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. White like white wool, like snow. Now what does that tell me? That tells me that the significance here is on the complete purity of Christ. He's talking about the fact that he is pure. He is without sin. He was, is without mistake. He is without error. He is perfectly pure like white snow. And of course the emphasis here is upon his head and his hair, so the emphasis is upon wisdom and intelligence, relating himself to the head and the hair. That's his wisdom. So he says he is completely and absolutely and purely wise like white snow. And then the second thing he deals with is his eyes. The end of verse 14. And he says his eyes were like a flame of fire. And I think the emphasis here is on his omniscience. His eyes are piercing and penetrating into the lives of those in the churches. He walks among these candles, candle holders, these light holders, and he has these penetrating eyes that see everything that goes on. They're a flame of fire burning in a hole in what they see. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. There are no secrets. Reminds me of Hebrews 4.13. It says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. His eyes are a flaming fire. He sees everything. He's omniscient. And then a third aspect of his person is his feet. In verse 15, it says, And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. Now, bronze is always symbolic of judgment. You go back to the Old Testament, to the tabernacle, and you'll find that the, the brazen altar was the place where they sacrificed the animals in judgment. Remember when Moses was in the wilderness and he lifted up the bronze serpent on the pole? Picture of judgment. Bronze is always the picture of judgment. And so here we see Christ's feet, and they're glowing bronze, like they're right out of a furnace, which tells me that he stands among the churches on the basis of righteous judgment. And that judgment can be seen in two ways. Number one, he's the one who bore our judgment. And I think that's why we find in verse 17 that John, when he sees the risen Christ, it says he falls at his feet because his feet in this picture are the only place where we can find mercy because that's a picture of judgment and he has taken our judgment on himself. But I think there's a second idea here and maybe a more prominent idea and that is the one, that he's going to be the one who acts as judge. And in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15 it says, He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. The picture is, is of Christ, uh, someone would get into a wine press and tramp down the grapes, and the, and the juice from the grapes would run out. And the picture here is of Christ in judgment with these feet. He's going to tread out the wine press of the fierce wrath of God. He's going to act in pure and righteous judgment. And then fourthly, we see his voice. 
At the end of verse 15, it says, And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Did you ever stand on the edge of the Niagara Falls and try to have a conversation? You find that, that the sound of those falls, the sound of those waters, deafen, drowned out every other thing that is said. And John says, that's what Christ's voice is going to be like on his day. You know, many men can't hear his voice today. But in that day, they will hear his voice. And there are a lot of other voices today. There's the voice of worldliness, the voice of materialism, the voice of psychology. Many voices today are calling out to the souls of men. Many voices today are taking precedence over the voice of Jesus Christ. But John says in that day, in his day, his voice is going to be like the voice of many waters. And everybody's going to hear his voice and everybody is going to heed. And then fifthly, we see his hand. In verse 16, he says, In his right hand he held seven stars. Verse 20 tells us these stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And that word angel can be translated messenger. So it could be that he's talking about angels, which would be kind of nice. It would mean we've got an angel for this church. Somebody's looking out for us. Um, but there's a second possibility, and that is he could be talking about people because this term is used of people, messengers. And it's possible that John's here on Patmos, and there may have been individuals who came from each of these seven churches to visit John, and he writes this prophecy, and he gives it to those seven men, and they are the messengers who take this book back to those seven churches. And he says, Christ says he has them in his right hand. He cares for them. And then sixthly, we see his mouth. Verse 16 again, he says, And out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. And the sword is symbolic in Scripture of the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that the Word of God is a sword. It's a sword in that it cuts in conviction and it cuts in judgment. And here again, I think the emphasis is on the judgment. Now Jesus, when he was here, said this in John 12, 48. He said, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. We will be judged by the word of God. And Revelation 19.15 says, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. It's judgment that takes place with the word of God. The word of God is the means of salvation if we accept it. If we reject it, it becomes the means of judgment. And then seventhly, we see his face. End of verse 16. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And this is obviously a reference to his glory. Like the Shekinah glory cloud of the Old Testament, his face shines like the sun in overwhelming glory. And then real quickly, notice John's reaction, verses 17 and 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. This same John who was so familiar with Christ that he laid his head on his breast in the upper room now falls prostrate at his feet. John had seen him many times before, but he had never seen him like this. And I think this ought to remind us that although we are sons of God and although we are joint heirs with Christ and although he is not ashamed to call us brothers, Christ is so exalted beyond us that even in our glorified state, 
we will willingly worship at His feet. We need to always remember that. Christ is our brother, Christ is our friend, but Christ is the glorified Son of God. And we need to have this kind of awe and worship and respect for Him that John demonstrates. John, his close friend, demonstrates when he sees Him in all His glory. And then Christ's response is at the end of verse 17. And He laid His right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And here's Christ in all His glory, and He's still reaching down to comfort and calm and assure His own. And He knows that John's heart, in, in John's heart there's more than just adoration. In John's heart there's some fear. Because John is saying, I'm not, I think this is him, but I'm not sure this is him. And he's really not sure. He's never seen Christ like this before. And so this, there's this fear in his heart, and Christ knows that. And he reaches down, and he assures him that he's still the same one that John knows. And he says, John, don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. I've got it all under control. I'm the first and the last. I'm the originator and the consummator. I'm the same one here at the end as I was at the beginning. And then he says, I'm the one who was dead and is now alive. John, I'm the one that you watched die. You stood there at the cross and watched me die. I'm the same one whose empty tomb you visited. I'm the same one you saw risen from the dead. And I'm alive forevermore. And because Christ conquered death, he has the keys to death and hell. And a key is a symbol of release, and that's exciting. I've got the keys of death and hell. What is it that we fear most in life? It's death and the consequences of that. The consequences of sin. And Jesus said, don't worry, don't fear, John. I've got the keys. Now, I used to visit Cook County Jail when I was in Chicago, but I never feared the bars. And I never feared the confinement because I knew that the guard had a key and he was going to let me out of there. There was no fear of the bars. And it's the same way for us in the spiritual realm. There's no fear of death for the Christian. There's no fear of the consequences of sin because Jesus Christ has the keys and he has set us free. And then finally, fourthly, we see John's commission in verse 19. Jesus said, Write therefore the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which shall take place after these things. And we said that that forms the outline for the book. Write the things that you have seen. That's the vision in chapter 1. Write the things that are, that are, that's chapters 2 and 3. And then he says, write the things which shall take place after these things. And that's chapter 4 through chapter 22. And we will use verse 19 as our outline for the book. What does this vision tell me real quickly? It tells me this. John, the disciple of the Lord Jesus, who walked with the Lord Jesus, who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, who leaned on his breast in the upper room, sees Christ in all His glory, and He falls prostrate at His feet. And I think that it would do us well today to know Christ as our Savior and friend, but to also understand Him as the glorified, risen, ascended Christ. And we might find ourselves in a new position if we get a new glimpse of who Jesus is, and it wouldn't hurt us to be bowing at His feet and adoring Him. And maybe the reason that worship is not coming from our hearts the way it should is because we need a new, fresh look at the Lord Jesus Christ and who He is. And John gives us that view here in Revelation chapter 1. 
Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to see through the words of John, his vision of the risen Christ. And we thank you for all that these aspects, even though they're symbolic in sense, tell us about the Lord Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that today, through all that we've said, that we might gain a fresh appreciation of, Lord Jesus, who you are, and that we might follow the example of John and fall at your feet and worship you and praise you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.